This episode of the DBR podcast is brought to you by the fine gentleman of Bird Campbell, your Duke-centric law firm, offices in Texas and Florida. If you have any legal needs, we urge you to reach out to our fine sponsors and a pair of great Dukies. Bird Campbell means business. Duke fans, welcome to the DBR podcast, episode number 122, 122 of these babies in the book. I am Jason Evans. I am your host this week. I am joined, as always, by my wonderful partners in crime. First of all, in Durham, North Carolina, Sam Klein. Hello. Good evening. It, uh, tomorrow is the first day of orientation. By the time you uh, listen to this, I will officially be uh, a Duke student again. So, hooray. You'll be oriented. It, uh, it, it apparently takes it apparently takes three days to fully orient a full time business school student. So uh, I won't be fully oriented until Friday afternoon. Uh, gotcha. In the meantime, uh, watch out. Yes, and congratulations by the way. Fuqua is a fabulous business school, and they are getting a fabulous guy in you. So congrats. Well, I, I I appreciate you thinking that, uh, and and also <laughs> expressing it to me publicly, because um, you know doubt creeps up in all of our minds. No, it should not creep into yours. You, you are <laughs> on your way to a great career in business. Donald Wine. Donald, are you in Washington or have you gone to some other far-off hinterland? Need I remind folks that last week Donald was at a bar in Utah. I, I am back in D.C. And and I, I actually thought about tonight finding a bar in D.C. and, and mimicking uh, my performance from last week. Uh, but it, <laughs> I just couldn't do it justice. So we're just going to leave that one in, in the past and let it stand uh, in the history that it, that it that it consumes. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, we have a really special treat for the audience tonight. I mentioned that this is podcast number one hundred and twenty-two. We made a mistake. We should have done this for podcast number one hundred and twenty-one because we're about to interview a man who wore number twenty-one for the Duke Blue Devils, and I believe he wore it better than anyone in Duke history. Um, other number 21s that didn't wear it better are legends like Jay Billis, Chris Duhon, Robert Bricky, Emil Jefferson, Antonio Lang, Demarcus Nelson, Miles Plumley. They all wore number 21, but the best ever number 21 for Duke is none other than Trajan Langdon. Trajan Langdon finished his career just 26 points shy of 2,000. He was a second team All American as a junior, first team All American as a senior. I believe. He is the best outside shooter in Duke history, not named J.J. Redick. This is a guy who hit 86% of his free throws in his career. He is fourth in the ACC in career three-point field goals, seventh in the ACC history in three-point field goal percentage, hit almost 43% of his threes for in his career. He held the record for the most three-pointers in Duke history until J.J. broke it, three-time first-team All-ACC, and a smart guy who was a three-time ACC academic All-American. I've given you lots of background, but I want to give you a little bit more. Trajan Langdon played the NBA for a few years, but then went to Europe. And this guy had one of the most successful careers in EuroLeague history. Spent most of his career with CSKA Moscow, where he won nine straight Russian League titles and two EuroLeague titles. And one year, he was MVP of the EuroLeague Final Four. He is the sixth leading scorer in EuroLeague history. And since retiring, I mentioned that Trajan was a three-time ACC Academic All-American. Since retiring, he has moved into management in the NBA, and he's currently the assistant general manager of the Brooklyn Nets. 
and he will be a GM someday. Mark my words, because he was one of the finalists for the Pistons job this summer. Lots of talk he was going to get the Pistons job. He didn't, but believe me, this guy's going to be a uh, – everyone in the NBA respects him. Trajan Langdon will be a Dukey GM in the NBA someday soon. So you're about to hear our interview with him. Donald and I got to sit down. We talked to him a lot about Duke. We talked to him a lot about the NBA. But I want to point out one thing before we get to the interview. Because Trajan is an NBA assistant GM, there are some things he could not talk about. It would be tampering if he talked about current NBA players or current college players. So we're somewhat limited in talking about some of these things. And there may be some questions you go, how could they not ask him about this? Well, we couldn't ask him about that because it would have been against the rules for him to talk about it. But he talked about a ton of other stuff. It's a great interview. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. One of my favorite Dukies of all time. Here's our interview with Trajan Lang. So the DBR podcast is thrilled and excited to be joined by one of my favorite Dukies of all time, a guy who I always loved watching play, the Alaskan assassin Trajan Langdon. Trajan, one of the great shooters in Duke and NCAA history. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation uh, and uh, look forward to having some fun here. Yeah, yeah. So um, here's the way it's going to work, my man. I am going to talk to you first about Duke and your time at Duke and that incredible career you had. Um, And then Donald's going to come in and Donald's going to talk to you a little bit about uh, your post-Duke career, which was also incredible and currently has you as the assistant general manager of the Nets. Um, So you you know a good deal about the NBA. We're going to be chatting with you about that. But we're going to start with your time at Duke. And I want to start with the 1999 team. I want you to know I was despondent when, <laughs> when you guys lost the, the final game your senior year. Uh, fans, folks, I don't think people remember how great that 1999 team was. You put a vicious beat down on virtually everyone that you guys played. I remember you played number nine, number four ranked Maryland at Maryland. You beat them by 18. You played number 14 ranked UNC at UNC. You beat them by 22. You won the ACC tournament by an average of 23 points a game. You were undefeated in the ACC. There were only five games all year that you guys didn't win by 10 or more points. 37 and one going to the national title game. And then we lost the national title oh, to UConn. Trajan, can I ask you, do you, are you like me? Do you think you guys would have won nine out of 10 times against that UConn team? It was a great UConn team, but 1999, y'all were one of the greatest teams in college basketball history, weren't you? I, I think so. It was a, it was a remarkable year. And, and there's one game to me that really stands out. And it was, you know, it probably doesn't to a lot of people, but I remember playing UVA at UVA. Uh, and I can't remember, I think it was later in the ACC season, maybe two thirds or three quarters of the way through. And wasn't looking at the score. It was in those games where, you know, for us, that was one of the more difficult places to play that we had played. And we knew UVA wasn't great, but, you know, they were competitive in their home court. So we went in and we were just playing hard. And I don't remember looking up at the scoreboard once. And then I remember coming out of the game with about 10 minutes left. And I'm looking at the assistant coaches like, am I done? Like, why are you taking me out? And they're like, yeah, looking at me crazy. And I look up and we're up like 50. And I'm just like, what? We are winning by like 45 points in this arena. And I just, I remember going into the locker room after, and it was, you know, me and Quinn Snyder and Johnny Dawkins are talking. We're just like, man, this team is, is pretty good that we just put a, a, a hurting on this team. It was actually pretty, 
you know, not one of the better teams in the ACC, but they were competitive at home and had played some good teams pretty tough. And obviously we blew them out that day. So um, the finish of that I, season I, was I looked, was I looked very it up. Difficult. You guys, you guys beat them a hundred to 54, a hundred to 54. That doesn't happen. <laughs> and that was at exactly. EVA. Oh my God. At yeah. UVA. So talk about the end of the season. But the end of the season was tough. And like you said, um, you know, we kind of, I wouldn't say we cruised through, but we put a beating on a lot of, a lot of teams and it was fun. It was a fun group to, to, to be with and, and just to practice with and against every day. Cause we had a lot of talent and it was practices were super competitive. And obviously that carried over into games where we were competitive and just would come ready to play every game. Um, and to come up short that last game was, was we knew we were playing against a very good team. We had played against a, a good Michigan State team in the semifinal. So we felt it prepared us to, to be focused and be ready. And, um, you know, they came out and they were better than us on that night. And, um, but I, I don't – you said nine out of ten. I would probably say seven or eight times out of ten I think we beat that team. But uh, give them credit. They were better on that night. Um, but I, we had a really special team, and it's just sad that we came up one game short. You are always the gentleman. Can I can I ask? And I promise this is the last question I'll ask about that game. Final play, five point <laughs> four seconds left. The ball's in yep. your hands, and we're down one point. Do you replay that in your sleep, like all the time? Um, that's not the play that I replay. The play that I replay is the one um, where I got called for traveling, um, where I, I went left on Ricky Moore, spun to the middle and getting ready to go up for a little floater and they called a travel and, you know, whether it's here or there, you know, I probably got bumped on the spin and whether I, you know, kind of had a hiccup in the little pivot, who knows, but it's just like, come on, man, really, you're going to call that at this time in the game. Like it wasn't like I got that much of an advantage and I did get bumped. So that's the one I replay because the ref made a huge play in the game and, and it wasn't about the player. It was about the ref in that situation. Cause I don't think it was that, you know, that call if you didn't call that call it's not like people were going to say anything so me getting tripped up a little bit and not being able to get that shot off is frustrating but you know the the no travel call that should have been uh, the travel call that should have been a no travel is the one that that i get that plays back in my mind okay so let's put the bad memories aside what's your favorite memory of your time at duke is there like any one teammate that you go that guy always made me smile um Chris Carwell was a hilarious guy. Um, we're still pretty close to this day, and he's a guy that always makes me laugh when we get together. He loves to talk hoops, um, so we talk family a little bit. But in the end of the day, whether it's phone conversation or at breakfast or dinner or just in the gym, it always comes down to you know personnel at the college or the NBA level and who we like, who we don't like, who's overpaid, underpaid, who are, who are the players that are panning out. And it's always fun to talk basketball with him. Um, it's always great running across guys like, Wojo, Jeff Capel, uh, Shane Batty, Elton Brand, and as Shane is, and Elton have worked their way, the ranks in their uh, respective organizations. It's been good seeing them on the road and, and, and talking about what's going on around the league as well. So um, all good guys, and I was blessed to be teammates with. So um, and my time at Duke, my four or five years there was, were tremendous and learned a lot and got to be around a lot of good people. Well, and, and yeah, there are a tremendous number of you who are in NBA front offices or um, uh, or coaching at the college level. I mean, Carowell, Chris Burgess, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's a very, very tight fraternity. Do you guys uh, do you guys all stay in touch? 
I, I think it's here and there. It comes in waves. Obviously, when Coach K has his uh, Coach K Academy um, uh, back in, I guess it's May and June, and, and a lot of us get to come back and get together, it's, it's a time to con- reconnect with a lot of guys that maybe you haven't seen in, in a few years or in some cases several years. Uh, so that's a great thing that Coach does. Other than that, it's it's you know here and there. Like Mike Dunleavy, I talked to on the phone the other day. He's looking to get into some stuff post career, maybe into scouting. Um, and then you know guys, I'll stay in more close touch with like Jeff Capel or Wojo, Chris Collins. Uh, those are the guys. Um, Shane, the guys that you played with, are, are guys that you stay in a little bit closer touch with, obviously. Uh, now talking about your career at Duke. Um... I, I always thought to me, you were one of the really unique, you had one of the really unique experiences at Duke because your freshman year, you guys were 13 and 18. You all just couldn't win any close games. And a lot of people would say that during the, you know, Coach K era, this is this is the the lowest point. And then from there, you're you're really the guy. You're the senior who leads us to the heights of nineteen ninety-nine was was it so much more satisfying? Was 99 more satisfying because of the depths of the lows that you you guys had in that, that first season? Oh, 100%. And I think even more to that story is, if you remember the year before I came in was Grant Hill's senior year, and they, went, and they were one shot away from winning the national championship. So I remember Ricky Price, myself, and Wojo being in a room up in College Park, Maryland, a couple of days before we played in the Cap Classic, watching the game, and or it was I can't remember if Ricky was there. It might have been just myself and Wojo, um, and obviously cheering for Duke. And we come up one shot short, and you know we didn't talk about it. But of course, we're thinking we want to go to a couple of these when we're in our four years. And then you know, fast forward one year, and we're not even playing in the postseason tournament. We've had the worst year in Duke history. Uh, at least with Coach K, and, um, you know, it was a completely different feel. And so then, yeah, it's just it was an uphill battle and a challenge getting back to um, where Duke had been. So to actually get back to that Final Four and reach a championship, which was, you know, Final Four was a was the goal, and obviously winning a championship was a dream. And to get that close to achieving both um, was you know, obviously something that was tremendous for me and a tremendous accomplishment over the over the five years that I was there to actually be a part of a Duke team that got us back to that point. So for young Duke fans, those who don't have memories as long as mine, <laughs> um, we're giving them a lot of history here. I want to give them a little more history. There are probably people who don't recall that you were a two-sport star, not just basketball, but you played minor league baseball for the San Diego Padres. You were a fairly high draft pick of the Padres organization. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, the Padres paid for your college education. Duke didn't have to pay that, for your scholarship. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Duke, helped, so, uh, Duke helped in the fifth year because the first four years uh, San Diego paid for it. But then because I was then not under contract anymore, they could pay for my fifth year. So Trajan, I think that technically makes you the greatest walk-on in Duke history because you didn't have a scholarship. Let, let me ask what ball over baseball um, and what was it like to play both those sports at such a high level at the same time? You know, I think um, when I got drafted back in, I guess, spring of 1994, 
I, I knew that if I went to Duke, I wouldn't have an opportunity to play baseball. And, and I knew the whole time when I got drafted that I liked it and I didn't love it, but it gave me an opportunity to keep playing something I thought I was pretty good at and let's see how far I can go with it. Um, but it was, you know, within a month after graduating high school, I was, I was in a, I was in Spokane, Washington playing baseball against guys that were a lot better than me. So it's something that humbled me right away. You know, you go from playing in the McDonald's all American game to the cap classic, knowing you're going to play Duke basketball and then you get drafted at a high point, but then you realize real quick, you got a whole lot of work to do on that baseball diamond, um, especially coming from the state of Alaska. So with this, you know, your seasons aren't that long. Um, it was very humbling. Um, it was a lot of time. And uh, the, the difference in the sports is obviously you, you go to a basketball gym and the games are two hours and your workout is, one and a half hours if you're going hard and you go to a baseball field and they had me, you know, the games at six Oh five, I had to be there at two, two thirty for early work. And then that game doesn't get over with till nine o'clock. And then you're hitting the road and you're going on a 10 hour road trip. And then you check into a motel and then you have a couple hours and you're back on the diamond again. And if you're there for two months and 60 days, you're playing 56 games. So it's a, it's a huge commitment in terms of time. Um, but the biggest thing in my three years was just being humbled and, you got to do a lot of work um, and uh, also trying to fit in some, some basketball skill work in there too, getting your shots up and, and getting on the court when you have, when you have baseball games every night. So it was definitely challenging, but um, something that, you know, really stands out in my experience is something that really humbled me and, and uh, made me the person that I am today. And last question about Duke, and then I'm going to hand it over to Donald for the NBA and, and your post-Duke career. Um, do you still talk to Coach K very much? And, and specifically, I want, to, I want to know, have you talked to him at all about the fact that he's evolved and his team actually plays zone now? Did you guys even practice <laughs> a zone when you were at Duke? <laughs> uh, I don't know that we ever did, aside if we were um... – preparing for another team that played zone. I don't know that we'd ever contemplate playing zone. I think that was back in the Coach K stubborn days where there's things that we did and, and, and we did them because he felt they were right. And obviously he'd won doing things a particular way. So that's the way we're going to do things uh, every day and every game. And we're just going to, if we didn't do it right, then we need to do it harder um, this way. So he obviously has evolved and I was, I was shocked in watching, you know, the team this year and how much zone that they played, but obviously you know, coach is incredibly intelligent. He understands what wins games. And obviously he felt that that was the thing that was best for that team uh, this, this, this season. So it'll be interesting to see if, if he does any of that and, and uh, in the season coming up. So Trajan, we want to transition uh, from your Duke career to your, uh, your professional career and transitioning to the NBA. You spent a few years with the Cleveland Cavaliers. What was the biggest adjustment for you uh, going from college to the NBA? I think it was that in college you have a couple really, really good players um, on the teams that you play against. And maybe it's the guy you match up against, but if it's not, then it's, you know, let's say, for example, um, you have a junior Burrow and a Curtis Staples. Well, maybe junior Burrow is the NBA player and Curtis Staples is the high-level college player who doesn't quite get to the NBA. Um, and so the NBA player on the teams that you play might not be at your position and not saying you can take a night off, but the challenge isn't there. So on one team, you might have 
one player and then on another team you, you match up against a Steve Francis where you have to bring it against a high-level NBA player at your position, but then the next night maybe you don't. Um, you obviously don't have that at the NBA level. You have the best of the best. And instead of guys my size that I'm playing against at my position, you have guys that are, you know, I was 6'3", 6'4". I'm going up against guys mainly that are 6'5", 6'6". And they're the elite athletes and the elite basketball players at that time, uh, at that position. So um, I think it's the size, the athleticism, the speed, and not, and not only in, in games, but in practice. Like I'm, uh, you know, I go in as a rookie and I'm the third two guard. I'm going against West Person and Bob Sura every day trying to earn minutes. So it's not only challenging in games, it's just as challenging in practice going against those guys. You have to bring it every day. And, um, Obviously, then you're not even talking about the likes of a Kobe Bryant or a Ray Allen that you're matching up against the all-star type guys. So um, I think that's the biggest challenge is getting used to the size and the speed. After that, it's just basketball. And, and you got to learn that you got to be in elite shape. you got to take care of your body. Um, but fortunately, um, I had baseball to kind of teach me how to be a professional, so I didn't have to worry about that at that level. Um, but, yeah, the, the athleticism and the size at, at this level – is something that you can't teach uh, until you get here. Yeah, and I know you. I know you played with the Cavs for a few years, and then uh, in 2002 you shifted to playing in Europe. Now, uh, when you shifted to Europe, what was your mindset at that point? Was it, you know, some guys go to play because they want to get back to the NBA, or was it that you thought that it was the best fit for you at the time to play in Europe? So after my third year in Cleveland, I got invited to go to a um, a mini camp with the Heat. And I can't, I think it was July and, um, must've been late, late July. And I was there for three days, uh, did four sessions in the three days, got a call from, um, Mauricio Garadini, who was the uh, GM of Benetton Treviso on the workout after the second day. And I remember him saying, look, we have an opportunity here, really good team. You'd come in here and you would start at the two guard. Everybody else is, uh, is remaining from last year's team that went to the Euroleague Final Four, and we have a really good coach named Ettore Messina. Obviously, all of this is completely uh, new to me, and I was completely oblivious as to who Ettore Messina was at the time and how good of a coach he was. So I took all this into accord, and at the end of the conversation, he said, well, look, I'm going to send you a contract tonight, and after your workout tomorrow, you're going to have to make a decision whether you sign it or not, or else we're moving on. So that was kind of a wake-up call for me. Um, did a little bit of homework, um, knew I still wanted to be in the NBA, but knew that maybe this was my best chance to get back. And ultimately my third year in Cleveland, I didn't play a whole lot. So I wanted to play. Uh, and that made a huge uh, impact on me signing that uh, contract the next day. Uh, I had a really good training camp and talked, spoke with um, Pat Riley after the practice the next day. And he said, we really like you. We'll invite you to camp, but we can't guarantee you a spot or money. And that just kind of really helped cement um, the answer to me, go ahead and signing that contract. And, you know, my mindset was, well, let's go to Europe and play a year or two and show what kind of player I am and hopefully get back uh, and have a chance to be on an NBA roster again. So that was initially the mindset. Um, obviously didn't end up panning out, but uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Got a chance to meet some amazing people and, and had an incredible career over in Europe. But incredible. That's that's a that's a word to describe it. I think you 
I, in my opinion, for a lot of people, you're considered a Euroleague legend. Uh, you know, with with CSK Moscow, you won the Euroleague twice. You you were the Euroleague Final Four MVP. You've been on you know two first team All Euroleagues, and I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. I do not think you ever placed second in the Russian league. I think you won every year you were there. Is that correct? So I, I won every year that I was at CSKA for six years. Um, I, my first year, I was with a team called Dynamo Moscow, and we actually lost to CSKA in the final. So, okay. Um, that was my only second-place final in my nine years in Europe. So so a couple questions. Uh, one, let's go to the EuroLeague. The EuroLeague is, is one of those things that people have, have put more eyeballs on from the United States in, the, in, previous, in the last few years. Uh, but winning the EuroLeague is a big deal. What was it like to win a title uh, in Europe? Basically saying that your team is the kings of Europe. How was that feeling, um, hoisting that trophy? So the first one was phenomenal for me just because of what I had gone through and, and losing at Duke my last year. And then my first year in Italy, we um, lost in the finals uh, in Barcelona. Uh, so it was like kind of a retread that I felt that we were the best team in EuroLeague that year and went into the Final Four in Barcelona having beat Barcelona once and then having lost to them um, by like one or two points on their home floor. So we felt even if we got to the final and had to play Barcelona again, we still felt we were the better team, got to the final against them and got beat. So it almost, you know, reconjured up the same feelings that I had Um four years prior at Duke and then a couple years later to get back to that final and actually win it was um, huge, huge emotions came from that and felt like you're on the top of the world. Um, the thing that I don't think a lot of people know about Europe is you can go and you can win this European title, but then you got to get your mind right three, three or four days later because you're playing in the court. You're the first round of your domestic league um, playoffs. So you don't get to celebrate it, go home and do nothing. You got to, you have basically 24 hours to celebrate and then you got to get your head straight or else you're going to get back and have an emotional low and get beaten and, and uh, maybe be put out of the playoffs. So, um, but it was tremendous. And then in Madrid, two years later, when I was named MVP, um, obviously another uh, great experience that we were dominant almost that whole year and, and then went and finished it off. So um, two things uh, in my life, two experiences and accomplishments that I'll, that I'll never forget. And, you know, fast forward to the end of your playing days, you, you are now uh, in, in the front office. Um, you, you became a scout for the San Antonio Spurs. As Jason mentioned, you are now the assistant general manager for the Brooklyn Nets. What's the first off, what's the one trait that you took from your playing days that applies most to your pro, pro uh, basketball career as an exec? And conversely, what has been the biggest transition? Good questions. Uh, I think. I think I've always kind of internally or inherently kind of wanted to lead. Um, I, I think I did it at my at the high school level pretty easily because I was one of the better players. If I was the best player on the team. And so that was kind of something I just did, whether it was through my everyday work ethic or driving my teammates um, and being competitive on a daily basis. I think I grew into it at Duke. And I think some of it was with the help of the I, I know some of it was with the help of the coaching staff and, and some, some of my teammates and watching them lead as, and as I got older. And I think in, in Europe, the more time that I spent there and the more um, the higher levels that I played at and the, and the more 
success that I had, I was able to grow into a leadership role, especially at Cisco, and then won championships, being co-captain there, understanding how to manage a locker room, keep us motivated as the year goes along. And I think that is something that I've tried to take into um, the front office, especially here in, in Brooklyn when I've been asked to be the GM of our um, of our of our D League team in Long Island is just in you know I kind of oversee our scouting department here, but just try to push the people around me um, uh, to the grace of my ability with the knowledge that I have, and we have a really good group here, and um, but just try to motivate, challenge, and be open with everybody, and it, it isn't about me, it's about us, and I always felt that that was that the best way in a team atmosphere too. It's not just about me. I can have 20, 25 points, but to make sure everybody else is taken care of too. You know, it's not just about one one player. It's about um, all five or all 10 players on the team contributing to a win. And it's the same way in the front office. It isn't just about one person. It's about everybody in that front office coming together and, and uh, pushing towards the right direction. Uh, all right. So a couple more questions uh, before we wrap up. The, the first one, what are your long-term plans as an exec? Is I know you're still very early on in your career as an exec, uh, one that we will probably see for uh, the next few decades, uh, you in a front office. Is there a particular goal you're hoping to achieve uh, now or in the future? Or is, is this something where you're, you're trying to figure out your, uh, where you fit, where you feel your best fit? I, you know, I've been incredibly blessed um, in, in a lot of ways and, and, to be able to start off with the San Antonio Spurs and even as a, as a scout and, and see the way that they do things and, and the way that they treat people and, and learn their process. And the fact that they allowed me to sit in on a lot of meetings and, and see the way that they do things and be around the team in the playoff races. And, you know, my first two years with San Antonio, we went to two finals and, and won one. Um, and then the year that I was with Cleveland, um, also be on a championship championship organization that won another championship. Um, I've been blessed. And then now I've been here and just kind of work through a rebuild and still be part of that and see how that's reshaping the, uh, you know, the rebuild of the Brooklyn Nets has, has been a fascinating experience and been something completely different that I've seen in my two previous organizations. I'm just taking everything in, learning as much as I can, um, and, you know, who knows where this goes. I'm in a, I'm in a great place now. Uh, I'm really blessed to be here working with the people that I'm with every day. And um, I'm in no rush to take the next step. Obviously, I think I would love to be a GM at some point. Um, but I have a lot to learn. And I just want to make sure that whatever I do, I'm doing it with, with great people, uh, with people that can continue to push me and challenge me. And I can, can do the same with them. All right. Uh, the last question we're going to get you out here, out of here on this one is a question that we ask every guest we've had on the DBR podcast that has ties to the program. It is, what is your favorite Coach K story or your most memorable Coach K story? We've had a lot of great ones. So we've had him uh, using a samurai sword to motivate his motivate the guys. We've had him lighting candles in the locker room. We've had a lot of great stories. Give us one uh, for the people. What is your most memorable Coach K story? So I have one that's most memorable for me personally, but I'm not going to mention that one um, because I, I want to do something that's that he does for the team because um, I have heard of some of the things that um, have been shared with you. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure that a lot of people have said that he's incredibly that he's an incredible motivator, which he is. He's also a very smart man. 
uh, does a lot of reading. And so I think a lot of thought, he's probably up all night the night before games trying to think about how I'm going to motivate my team on for this game. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot and kind of went back and visited him a couple of times and tried to figure out why he does this thing or how he does it. And, you know, thought about it. He'll, he'll come in and, and he can be analytic with his motivation. He can come in and say, um, you know, we're playing Clemson tonight and these are their players and this is what they like to do. And this is what we need to do and kind of go through player personnel scouting and be kind of systematic with it. Um, or he can come in and, and philosophize and say, look guys, for us to play against this team, this, the, the team on the other side, they're like five fingers, you know, the thumb is the point guard and he's talented and the, you know, the middle finger is the center and he's really good, but they're five individuals. And if you go up and hit a wall with those five fingers, you're going to break, you're going to break those five fingers. We're going to be together as one, like a fist. And even though individually we might not be as talented as a fist, we're going to go hit that wall and we're going to punch a, we're going to punch a hole through it. We're going to be stronger than those five fingers. Or he can come in and, and, and take the more athletic, um, the athletic stance, which I think was always, one that motivated me more than anything else. And the one that I remember that I think he did on two different occasions in my five years where he'll come in and he's, you, you know, if you see him on the sideline, he's always in this really nice suit and he's got the tie that matches, matches the shirt, matches the belt, you know, matches the shoes. And I remember coming in and didn't have the coat on and he comes in with this intense look and he's just like, you know, he, he would spin the, he spins the ball around, kind of just shows us, shows the basketball to everybody. He's got this tight grip on with his elbows out. And he goes, you see the name on this ball? It says Spalding. And all of us see that. But I want, when you're on the court, that ball to, in your our eyes tonight isn't going to say Spalding. It's going to say Duke. It's going to say D-U-K-E. And wherever that ball is, it has to be Duke's ball. And he'd roll the ball on the floor and he'd dive after it. He'd just dive on the ball and he'd roll around in his suit and tie and and then he'd get up and say, let's effing go. Let's effing go. This is Duke's ball. See a guy <laughs> rolling on the floor, getting after it in a suit and tie. So um, those are great, great moments and moments that I'll never forget. And, I mean, talk about the energy in that room and us running out to the court. And I can't remember. Whoever we played was in trouble on those nights. Well, that that is awesome. I, I like the fact that he <laughs> – we, we now have another one. Coach K can get down and dirty before – before games to motivate the troops. Uh, I, bet, everyone, I bet he doesn't do that anymore. He probably doesn't. Not as, well, maybe he does. We'll, we'll have to get a current player to get that. Uh, it would just take, him a little longer, just take him a little longer to get up now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Trajan Langan, uh, assistant general manager for the Brooklyn Nets uh, and the legend uh, Duke basketball, Elastin Assassin, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the DBR podcast. We wish you uh, and the Brooklyn Nets all the best this season. Uh, I know it's going to be uh, a great year up there in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us, and we will hopefully see you down the road. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So, guys, wow, that was great. I mean, Trajan was so much fun. I really thought he was thoughtful and in, insightful. I, I, you know, I, I've got a couple of things I want to point out, but, but uh, Donald, let me get to you first because you were the other guy with me on the call. What, what are your, you know, what, what are the things you liked best? What do you find most interesting that Trajan had to talk about? You know, the one thing that we're always uh, 
fixated with is Dukies in the NBA. But, you know, we've also had Dukies go on to have very successful careers in Europe. And as the guy who probably had one of the greatest uh, European uh, careers of any basketball player, not just Dukies, but any basketball team, uh, I was really interested to hear about his experience in Europe uh, playing um, for CSK Moscow. And, and I loved his answers. I loved how he compared, you know, his thought process behind joining the team, how he was still at first saying, Hey, I just kind of want to get back to the NBA. And in the end decided to stick it out and have a brilliant career. Um, and, you know, I, there are players, we, we talk about EuroLeague now because it's something that has popped up has been a lot more eyeballs on it uh, from American, American eyeballs over the last few years. And so you you know you hear the name of Tori Messina and you hear him and you know who that guy is. He's an assistant coach uh, under Greg Popovich for the San Antonio Spurs, one of the most revered minds in basketball in general. Um, and Trajan Langdon had nothing but great things to say about playing for him. And he said he made him a better player. I think that sort of uh, link is something that we don't get to hear about uh, from uh, from professional basketball players. A lot of people don't talk about their European experience that he had one of the greatest ones and was able to talk about it with such fervor and, and, and such passion. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And I know you're going to talk about it, but the coach case story with, with him rolling <laughs> on the ground, uh, fighting over a basketball with just himself in a suit. Oh, uh, th- that's something that I really wished that I could see in person. And I hope he still does that. Um, but uh, that was a really there cool is, story. Donald, there is, there is no way he does that. He's, I mean, at that time, he was only on his first, I think, replacement hip. But now yeah, he's yeah, got he's like zero. Hip. Yeah, he's, <laughs> so, got, he's so, got zero original hips. There's no way he's rolling on the ground anymore. So we're going to need to petition him just to, like, have bionic knees so that he could just go back to doing that and going back to his younger days because I think some of the younger kids will appreciate him uh, rolling around on the ground and saying, let's effing go. Sam, uh, what about you? You you didn't get to join the interview, but you listened to it just a few minutes ago. What did you think? I thought it was great. So I, I was telling you guys that Trajan Langdon is a little bit before my time. I've, I've mentioned before, I know that 2001 is like the first season that I really remember as a Duke fan. Um, Dude, so you Trajan, 99. Oh, I know. I'm telling you, like the, that's like the most fun season because we beat the crap out of everyone. Well, and and and. I feel like I sort of prepped for this, for listening to this interview by the interview we did a couple of years ago with Shane Battier, because of course they overlapped for a couple of years and sort of told similar stories. If, by the way, fans of the show, if you haven't listened to our Shane Battier interview, it was one of the first ones we did. I think it was like the first summer after we started this show and we had Shane Battier on and we asked him about being on those teams and, and, and he told us about, uh, some of like how Coach K would get mad at them for only winning games by 15 points or or like, you know, I remember I, I called him out for uh, he, he said s- some story that started with him saying like, oh, well, we had lost two games in a row and then such and the, the rest of the story continued on. And I said, Shane, I just looked at at all four of your seasons <laughs> never and you never two lost two games in a row. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so it was fun. It was fun listening to these stories because they sort of corroborated a lot of that. Right. He was like he mentioned that UVA game where they were up by 40 points or whatever. And, and the coaches took him out early and he was like, what's going on? And it turns out that, you know, they were, they were crushing an ACC opponent so badly that they couldn't leave the starters in anymore. So I liked, I liked hearing that. I feel like I'm 
again, because I don't really remember that time, I don't really remember what it was like for Coach K to be holding players to such a high standard that you couldn't even you couldn't even fathom it, right? Like, wh- what was it like to be a Duke player in 1999 or, or 2000 or 2001 when they were stomping on basically everybody and and the the standard was so high that it was basically like being USA Basketball um, for most of USA Basketball's existence, except of course under Larry Brown, but um, you know, the, the, that mentality that like, we're going to go out there and we are going to beat the hell out of anyone we play. It doesn't matter. And, and, and whether that's preparing, as Trajan said, preparing by scouting all the players individually, or just preparing with like a mindset and, and sort of explaining an overall philosophy for the game. I loved hearing all that. I also, um, feel like I get a better impression of, of how extreme it was because Trajan says that 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 was Coach K in his stubborn days. And I know that Coach K is still fairly stubborn in, in the way that he likes to coach. Obviously, he's introduced the zone the last couple of years, but man, that had to take a, a lot of a lot of pulling uh, pulling on Coach K to think that there was like a time before my Duke memory when Coach K was really considered stubborn. That's That tells me a lot about sort of the whole state of the program. It probably um, hasn't just the, the last thing. Day. Oh, yeah. Um, the last thing that that stood out to me was him talking about coming in in 1995 and having that disappointing season where they didn't make the tournament. They were under 500, um, like one of the worst seasons in, in all of Duke basketball history. And then for him to finish his career in 1999, not quite winning the championship, of course, but making the final four and and being arguably one of the greatest teams that we've ever seen. And it makes me think about that 2010 team that I love to talk about so much because that was, of course, when I was in school and how the the class of 2010 started their careers in the 07 tournament, losing in the first round to VCU, the first time Duke had lost in the first round since I think like the 80s um, and them coming, you know, each year getting a little further in the tournament and their senior years winning the championship. It sort of has that same kind of vibe to it and and arguably is the 99 uh, group that the Trajan was part of has an even bigger rise from you know just from where they started where you know the the program had won seven of uh, or they had been to seven of nine nine final fours prior to him arriving on campus you know coach K was a was a big celebrity all the all the Duke guys were celebrities at that point and um, to sort of fall on their faces that 95 season so hard but then pick themselves back up and get back to a final four uh, really speaks to, you know, how, how tough they all were and, and how good they all wanted to be. I, I, you know, obviously I can't remember what all those years were like, but that's really cool. And it, and it, it makes me appreciate even more that 99 team and knowing that, that those guys came from there. So the two things that I really took from it, other than the great story about coach K rolling on the floor, I mean, how fabulous is that one? Um, I, there were two of his answers that I really enjoyed. The first one was when we talked about, he talked about how close he still is to lots of his teammates. And he specifically talked about Chris Carowell and that they get on the phone and they still, you know, they'll get on the phone. They'll just talk basketball back to back and forth with each other. Um, I, you know, I really like that. And, and, and you love hearing about, you know, the, the lifelong bond that these guys form by being teammates. Um, not surprising. It's not the first time we've heard that kind of thing, but I just enjoy hearing about that. And then the other thing I really liked was he pointed out that, uh, and he said that started in high school, I think for him, um, how he always wanted to lead and how that had really driven his career. And, and one 
one of the reasons he was wanting to lead. Um, and one of the reasons he's now moved into, you know, management in the NBA, wanting to lead. And, and um, you know, I think that's, it, it's sort of interesting to me because Trajan was always perceived, Sam, I know he was before your time. He was perceived as kind of a quiet guy on the floor. He wasn't super demonstrative and emotional and things like that. And you usually, know what's funny, time, Jason? Yeah. You know what's funny yeah. about that? I told a friend of mine who graduated from Duke in the 90s that we were interviewing Trajan last week. And he said, oh, forewarning, it might not be a great interview. He's kind of a quiet guy. Yeah, exactly. So he has that reputation. I, I would have I would have said to you prior to us getting this interview that he would be quiet and soft spoken and, and he really wasn't. Um and and that's one of the reasons I love it when we get these interviews and we get to talk to these guys in um, you know, we, we learn more about who they really are as a person. And the guy you see on the basketball floor isn't necessarily the guy that they are the other twenty three and a half hours of the day, so to speak. Um and and like I said, I just loved his answer about wanting to lead and how that has driven everything he's done. I think it's a, uh, I think, I think it's good advice for all of us that, that we should take that kind of uh, advice. And, and again, Trajan, thank you so much for joining us and for being a, a part of the DVR podcast and for providing us with that insight. And especially thank you for the image of coach K rolling around the floor, trying to grab a basketball. So once again, here on the DBR podcast, we want to thank our faithful sponsors, the guys from Bird Campbell, your Duke-centric law firm. And I, I told Tucker Bird, one of the partners there, that we were going to be interviewing Trajan Langdon. And, and he wrote this back to me, and I really wanted to read it to all of you, um, uh, what he feels about Trajan. He said, in the pantheon of Duke basketball heroes, Trajan Langdon stands firmly rooted he checked all the boxes when it comes to becoming a Duke legend. He stayed for five years. He persevered throughout. He became a captain, made it to a Final Four. He was, uh, he was degreed, and he got a math degree, and he earned one of the all-time great nicknames, the Alaskan, Alaskan Assassin. Those one-and-run players could learn a lesson from Trajan's Duke career, Tucker Bird says. Play for one year, you may get an NBA job, play a career, and you could build yourself a legacy. Wonderful words there from uh, Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell. And uh, once again, we want to thank the guys from Bird Campbell for being our sponsors here on the DBR podcast. If you have legal needs in Florida or Texas, be sure to reach out to them at birdcampbell.com, B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Bird Campbell means business. So guys, I want to play a little bit of a game here. This is what we're going to do next. It has been a long summer. It's pretty much done. Students will be going back to campus very, very soon. And the game I want to play is, what was the most significant thing to happen for Duke basketball this summer? And here's the criteria. I have three different things I'm going to toss out for you. And then you guys are going to comment on them. And eventually we will vote and we will pick the most significant thing to happen to Duke basketball this summer. Nominee number one, RJ Barrett being the best player on the floor for Team Canada. RJ played for the Team Canada national team in the World Cup qualifiers this summer. He played with multiple NBA players. I'm talking Dylan Brooks, Dwight Powell, Kelly Olynyk, some really good NBA players, established NBA veterans. And RJ not only was starting for that Team Canada team, he led the team in scoring, averaged almost 14 points per game, and most people said he was the best player on the floor almost all the time, playing with legit NBA players. He even says that Canada is ready to beat Team USA in national team competitions. And we re remember, 
RJ led Canada to a victory in the, I think it was the under 17 world championships over team USA coached by John Calipari. So that's candidate number one, RJ Barrett, best player on the floor for team Canada in the world cup qualifying candidate. Number two for the most significant thing to happen to Duke this summer. We've all talked about it. We've all seen it. Zion Williamson broke the Duke vertical record. They were testing vertical leap at Duke and Zion reached the highest point on their testing pole. They had to go get an extension pole for him to come out and reach even higher. They didn't release the exact height of his vertical, but it, from all appearances, appears to be greater than 40 inches. And while that's great, what makes it truly shocking is that he did that while having the body of an NFL defensive lineman, 6'7", 285 pounds. The best vertical in Duke history belongs to a guy who is the size of an NFL defensive lineman. Oh, my God. He's going to do things that will leave your jaw on the floor. So that's candidate number two, the third candidate for most significant thing to happen for Duke this summer, an interview with Coach K. And in that interview, Coach K said that he believes that Marquise Bolden will be one of the best big men in the entire country last year. He pointed out that we have not been able to see the real Marquise Bolden because he's been injured in each of the past couple seasons. And he said Marquise has really improved and he's going to have a huge year. And Coach K predicted that Marquise Bolden would be one of the best big men in all of college basketball this year. Gentlemen, those are your nominees. RJ, best player for Team Canada. Zion, breaking the vertical record. Bolden, one of the best bigs in the country. Sam, I go to you first. What do you think about those? So I want it to be Marquise Bolden's story because we know about lots of Duke big men in the past who have had injury problems. I think Brian Zubek is the one who stands out the most in that category, coming in as a five-star recruit, having injuries, you know, a lot of fans thinking, well, like sort of looking past the injuries and just going, well, he's not good. He's not, he's not getting on the floor. He's not getting minutes. He's not getting numbers. Um, he must not, he must not be all that good. He's not really living up to his recruiting ranking or his hype. We were really excited for Marquise Bolden. I know last summer when we talked about, uh, or two summers ago when, when he was coming in, we talked about him competing for minutes uh, with, with those other guys like Giles and Tatum, who are now, of course, in the NBA. And I want that to be real. What I fear is that it's Coach K doing some, some public motivation of Marquise to really, really get him psyched up and excited about his role on this team because I think he he's going to need to step up and and play good minutes and be a leader for for this young duke team. So with that said, I think the big story is Zion Williamson. Um Jason, you you emphasized it very clearly. He is bigger than anybody I think we've seen in a duke uniform. He's like heavier than anybody we've seen in a duke uniform and he can jump higher than all of them too. And that is that is really scary. I mean, we've seen we've seen some pretty fantastic dunkers at duke. The, the one who I really remember, you know, from the last few years that was, that was so impressive was Miles Plumley, And just the, like, you know, he was so tall, he could get up so high, he could block shots, all that stuff. And Zion Williamson is, is thicker and <laughs> apparently can jump higher. So um, I am, I am scared of, of the things he's going to be able to do against, uh, you know, competition that is all smaller than he is. And, and, and this is not, you know, this is not a guy who's a leaper who's who's a little dude. This is a leaper who is who is massive, and no one's going to want to stand in the way. No one's taking charges from Zion Williamson. Um, he is he is shoving dudes out of the way. There's a great 
there's a great old gif of uh of Shaquille O'Neal that pops up on the internet all the time of him uh dunking I don't remember who the the center is that he's like he, he like dunks and shoves the guy to the ground all in one motion Chris I want to see Zion Williamson what was it Chris Dudley Chris Dudley, who probably, who probably took the ball and threw it at, at, trucked it down the court at Shaq, and I believe got got a technical, or, or I don't think he got ejected, but he definitely got a technical for it uh, while screaming you at Shaq. Zion Williams is going <laughs> to do that like to Luke May, and it's it's going to be like one of the greatest moments of my life. So <laughs> um, I think I think. While I want the while I want the Bolden thing to be the biggest thing, I think it's going to be Zion Williamson and just what a force he's going to be at the college level. Donald. So I think I know what Jason's going to talk about. He uh, and I'm not going to spoil it for everybody. So I am going to talk about exactly what Sam just talked about. Zion Williamson. I think that is the most significant thing because and here's why. He is a already a YouTube sensation. He's a cultural phenomenon. And now that he is listed at a weight that is five pounds lighter than the heaviest player in the NBA and is still breaking vertical leap records in, in college. And he hasn't started yet. This is the, this is the great thing about him. Like when you look at Zion Williamson and you look at the fact that he, everyone thought that he's just a dunker. Everyone at, here's, here's another thing. When you're looking at his mass, the, in, in college, you know, entering college, he's two, six, seven, 285. When he left high school, he was six, seven, 270, and people were worried about his conditioning. They were also saying he has to lose a little weight, and, and you know, by getting into a college program of weightlifting and strength and conditioning, that he was going to lose a lot of weight and that he'd probably be about 245, 240. He, guys, he put on 15 pounds of muscle on a frame that everyone thought was already big, but it, People, I think what it does is it it just kind of blows your mind as to how big this guy really is and how athletic he still is. How he has not lost his touch. How Do he's you, improved his Donald, shooting. Can you can you believe like what happens if it turns out he's good at playing defense? That's I mean, what I'm saying like, <laughs> if you're not going to be able to get around a guy that size, if he's like just just imagine what that does for an offense and a defense on an offense. If he sets himself up on the block. That's his block. You're, you're, you're not going to move him out of the paint. Charles Barkley style, right? Yeah. If, if he establishes his position, and I know he, he already has great footwork, so that is something that we don't think is going to be an issue, right? Like he's going to be a guy that is a presence on the court. He already has the attention. And honestly, he's still going to get his points. You've seen him in some of these Duke Blue Planet videos. He gets the ball in the paint and jumps over seven footers and jams in their face and, and apologies to Tony Ovrekovic, but sir, are you doing okay? Cause I saw that video the other day and man, he, he just, he has an elevator that is three floors higher than everyone else on the planet. And I say that including NBA players, he is on a, he is in a Duke basketball uniform that got, that has me so freaking excited for the season. Well, and <clears throat> sorry. There is no question that Zion Williamson is going to be the most explosive player to ever put on a Duke uniform. And I mean, think about how many great players we have had. Um, he is probably going, you know, in terms of pure athletic specimen, he's almost certainly number one, um, which is scary because, I mean, 
Corey Maggette, Grant Hill. There have been a lot of Dukies that were just crazy, ridiculous athletes. And Zion's going to be number one. But as Donald already said, I believe the most significant thing that happened this summer was R.J. Barrett and what he did for the Canadian national team. Because that was not competing against high schoolers. That was not competing against college guys. He was competing against men, adults, adults who in many cases are in the NBA or who play professional basketball, um, you know, elsewhere in the world. And he was the best player on the floor. Think about that for a minute. I mean, it's, it's almost unreal to imagine that an 18, 19 year old kid, let's not forget that he reclassified. He should have been class of 2019. He came to Duke a year early class of 2018 instead. Um, uh, high school class, of course. Uh, This is a kid who at 18, 19 years old was better than established NBA veterans, guys who are making many, many million dollars per year. And and I want to take it, I want to put it in some real perspective for you. In Duke basketball history, there have been three players who were the number one overall pick in the NBA draft. Art Heyman did it in 1963. And I'm not going to tell you I know anything about Art Heyman's NBA career. I was just, I'm not, I'm old, I'm not that old. But the two who we, who've done it recently that we can relate to and remember are Elton Brand and Kyrie Irving. Elton Brand in 1999, Kyrie Irving in 2011 were both the number one pick in the NBA draft. And think about how dominant, how great they were in college. They seem to be on a different level from everyone else. And there is no question. I've spoken to some guys who are involved in the NBA scouting game a little bit. I've got some friends, some people who... Uh, you know, know this stuff. They say there's absolutely no question that R.J. Barrett is going to be the number one pick in next summer's NBA draft. He's going to join Kyrie and Elton Brand as recent guys who were the top pick in the draft from Duke University. Jay Williams wasn't number one. Jason Tatum wasn't number one. Brandon Ingram wasn't number one. I can go down the list on and on and on of Duke players, great Duke players, who weren't that good, weren't good enough to be the number one overall pick. R.J. Barrett will be. And uh, and these NBA guys that I've spoken to said what he was doing in these world championship qualifying games was unreal. They've never seen a, a high schooler, let alone a guy who'd been in college for a year, but even a guy who's never been to college. They've never seen one do what he was doing playing against grown men. And I think he is going to be absolutely unreal for Duke. He's going to be borderline unstoppable. Um. And, and I'm just really excited about it. So I think that's the most important thing. All right, guys. So we've talked about the most significant thing to happen this summer. The real most significant thing that's going to happen comes up next, which is that Duke is playing during the summertime. We're playing. We're going on a Canadian tour. August 15th, 17th, and 19th, Duke will be playing Ryerson, University of Toronto, and McGill. You are forgiven if you are not familiar with those three teams. So I'll tell you a little tiny bit about each one of them. Ryerson is probably the best program in all of Canada. They play in the Canadian National Championship tourney virtually every year. Last year, they played for the title, and they only lost by two points in the, in the championship game. Their head coach, Roy Rana, is really involved with Canadian basketball, national basketball, and he's coached R.J. Barrett in the past. So R.J. knows him really well. Um, so Ryerson's who we play first. We then play to University of Toronto. They're not nearly as good. They only were like 
13 and 11 in Canadian basketball play last year, and they don't really play many NCAA schools. We're probably going to absolutely destroy them. They don't have anyone on their team who's more than like maybe six, eight. I don't even want to imagine what Zion Williamson is going to do to the University of Toronto. And then our last game is against McGill, which is another one of the very top programs um, in Canada. Um, and, uh, I, you know, they, they, they play a lot of NCAA teams. It's going to be real interesting to compare scores. Before The week before they play us, they play both Old Miss and Cincinnati. And later in the year, they'll be playing St. Mary's and Harvard. So McGill really makes a practice of playing NCAA teams, and they compete with them last year. Miguel beat UTEP twice, and they played SMU, and they played a really close game against SMU. And that SMU team last year was was pretty good. They probably would have been like right on the bubble for the tournament if they'd been eligible if um, Larry Brown hadn't made them ineligible. So, uh, so those are the three uh, the three opponents we're going to have. But uh, the big thing I want to ask you guys: uh, What are you going to be looking for? What what do we? What should we? I mean, Duke's going to win all three of these games. Um, it, it would be a huge shock if we didn't win if we didn't win them by you know twenty plus points. Um, even against the best teams in Canada like Ryerson and McGill. Um, Donald, I'll go to you first. What is there one stat or one thing you're really going to be looking for in these three games in Canada? Yeah, sure. I, I think the one thing that I'm going to be looking for is really two things, is how we line up, our, our starting lineup, and our rotations, because I think that's the first chance for fans to kind of see what these competitions are 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 all about, that, that they're you know battling in practice. Who is starting, you know, and it's not necessarily something where we can look at a starting lineup against Ryerson and go, that's that's obviously going to be the starting lineup on opening night against Kentucky. But I think we can look at that and kind of see where Coach K's head is at as as how he wants to employ uh, all these guys, you know, and, and also the rotations. Does he have a big lineup? Does he have a small lineup? Does he, you know, play RJ and, and Zion both in the middle? Like, does he play Cam Reddish with those guys? Um, is it going to be four freshmen and, and Marquise Bolden? Like, I, I think that is what we're going to see a lot is we're going to see a lot of tinkering of the lineups and we're going to try and see where the coaching staff's head is at with regards to how these guys work together uh, and what kind of, uh, you know, rotations we can see. So that's really what I'm looking for. I think that, the thing that interests me that Donald, you didn't mention at all is Trey Jones and Duke has had a few recent point guards, specifically Kyrie Irving and an older brother, Tyus Jones, who have been really good, um, really great point guards sort of right out of the gate for them. They've also struggled with some freshman point guards, you know, Derek Thornton, um, Trayvon Duval have, have both had their struggles as, as freshmen at Duke. And so I am looking at Trey Jones to see, how well he distributes, how well he shoots, how calm he is. Again, as, as Jason said, it's not like Duke is expected to, to play close games against these teams, but I want to know kind of what sort of talent we're getting in Trey Jones. The thing that I am concerned about as far as like fan expectations go is, is assuming that Trey Jones is just going to be Tyus Jones 2.0. That might happen, and that would be, that would be wonderful. We, we all remember all the big shots he took and the, and the big plays he made, but it's sort of unfair even for a guy of his talent level to just expect that Trey Jones jumps in and, and takes the reins of this team this quickly. I think patience watching him at first is, is going to be important. The other thing that, um, that I'm interested in is, is who's shooting the ball for Duke, especially from outside. We know that um, Cam Reddish comes in with, with a, with a shooter's uh, ability. We know that Alex O'Connell is probably on the bench, but, but has that, in him, he, he 
made some big shots for Duke last season, and, and we saw those glimmers. Um, we know that those guys are both going to be good enough to to get big minutes for this team. So I want to know um, how many how many shots each of them is taking from outside, and 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 who it seems like the the go-to scores are on the perimeter because we know that inside there's a lot of talent. We know that Zion Williamson's going to get the ball. We know um, that RJ Barrett's going to get the ball, that Duke's going to have a lot of size to throw around. I want to see how they attack on the perimeter because ultimately that's how, that's how teams have been winning the last few years. You know, Villanova last year, great example of they had big men, but a lot of the scoring comes from the outside. Well, Sam, you, you, you took the thing I was going to look for. I mean, like we said, Duke's going to win these games by, 20, 30, probably 40 points. Um, and uh, and in terms of size, Ryerson has a has a guy who's 7'2 from Senegal. Um, he's not great, but I mean, he at least is 7'2. But other than that, these teams aren't putting big men out there who are taller than maybe, maybe 6'7 or 6'8. And so Duke's going to own the boards. I, I expect uh, Bolden and Delaurier will... We'll grab a ton of rebounds, have a ton of putbacks, and and look really good, and probably inflate our expectations way beyond where they should be on those guys. The thing that I'm really as, looking as for- is tradition, and that is that yeah. is tradition yeah. for every exhibition game. I think we've said it every year. Exhibition games ignore rebounding numbers, especially from the reserves. They are not yep. real. <laughs> yep. Uh, but but you hit on it. The thing I'm going to be looking for is the three point shooting, because that's something that isn't super dependent on the quality of the opponent. I mean, look, I know some teams are better at closing out and and defending threes, and some of these opponents that are not as quick and not as good probably are going to let us get more uncontested threes. But I'm really eager to see who's taking and who's making three pointers for us, because come the regular season. Teams are going to be really packing it in to stop Zion Williamson and stop R.J. Barrett from getting and operating in the lane. Those two guys, when they get in the lane, forget about it. You're in terrible trouble. They're going to score. They're pretty much unstoppable in there. So teams are going to want to pack it in, and I want to see who on Duke is able to take and make three-pointers. And we should mention there's a whole thread on the board about this. If you don't go to the DBR boards, you've been missing out on it. There's a thread about Jack White who apparently has been absolutely scalding, lighting it up from three-point range in his shooting this summer. They've been doing some organized drills. They've been keeping track of exactly how many shots everybody takes and makes and things like that. And Jack White has some sick numbers. Now, look, there's a reality here that Jack White is not going to play. Jack White is not going to play 20 minutes a game for Duke this year. I bet he's not going to play even 10 minutes a game for Duke this year. But... If he's playing seven minutes a game and he's shooting two or three three-pointers in those seven minutes, eh, that could be a significant thing for Duke. So I'm going to be on the lookout for three-pointers and three-point percentage and who is taking the threes. Um, Jason, those- you're looking for you're looking for one at least one, you know, top half of the ACC team's SB Nation board to be littered with. Wait, who the hell is Jack White after one game this season? <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that would be very nice and very fun. I would look forward to that. I hope that happens. All right, guys, we're moving on to parting shots. It's been a packed podcast again. My goodness, we have so much to say. Donald, I will go to you first. Give me your parting shot. This is something that I saw on Twitter this morning, and I had to bring it as my parting shot because I oh, thought it was so great. This is incredible. So um, the Danny Barry at the Danny Barry on Twitter um, 
it, I'm just going to give you the first tweet of the of the tread, and then we'll discuss the tread. Um, it says, I now present ACC football teams as fast food restaurants. Disclaimer, Bojangles is not involved in this list. Sorry, John Swafford. And he <laughs> proceeds to go through every single team in the ACC for football and talk about them very quickly in a tweet. Talk about them and what kind of restaurant they represent. Some I'm of these go are brilliant. Some of these are good. so great. Yeah, I want to go through a couple for the fans out there. You can check it out, but I'm going to go through a couple that I thought were my favorites. Florida State. You might dislike them for ethical reasons, but you can never deny how good they are. They're Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. I mean, that's so, it. That's exactly how I feel about Florida State football. So exactly. Perfect. Like, um, like when, and, when, when and James Chick-fil-A. Winston. And Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> um, Louisville came out of nowhere and were solid for a while. Everyone thought they'd stick it out with the best of them. But then they were marred by a scandal that slowly taken them down. They're Chipotle, bro. <laughs> just incredible. Um, as somebody, as somebody who subsisted on Chipotle for most of my senior year of college and now eats it maybe once a month, man, that that hits so close to home. Yep. Uh, and this one right here, um, Georgia Tech. Disclaimer: There's some language in this one. They run the same plays. They run the same three plays in a variety of formats. Also, the day after playing them, you feel like shit. They're Taco Bell. Just <laughs> cancel me. Just cancel me. Uh, but I want to get to the Duke one because I also thought it was pretty appropriate. Yeah, um, it's not great. It's, it's, it's not, not great. great. Those are the best. Not, those are the, those are the best ones by far. But the Duke one, I have to do the Duke one. They technically play football, but everyone just goes for the basketball. They're Dairy Queen. And we were, we were talking about this. I think it was you, Sam, who didn't get the reference of why that would be a Dairy Queen reference. Is that, was that you that did that? Yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 over my head. Yeah. So, so basically, Dairy Queen is an ice cream joint. It is not a fast food joint. It's an ice cream joint. They serve food, but they're an ice cream joint. No one goes for the burger. They, they have all these commercials about them having burgers and hot dogs and everything else. It's Dairy Queen. We're not going for the burgers. We're going for the ice cream. So basically what this is saying is, yeah, they play football. They, they may have football, but everyone, and I don't think the fans, I, I think it's other people. They, they want to go for the basketball team. So I think it's one of those things where um, I, I appreciate the fact that they think they're doing but I hope that our guys can play like more than Dairy Queen this year. I think they can play like, uh, you know, some of the you know better teams in the ACC if they, you know, play well. So, uh, but I do think, if you guys haven't seen this, it was something that was posted this morning. It's absolutely hilarious. A lot of them will make you laugh for, for several minutes. Um, and there's one I want to end with, and it's Notre Dame. Notre Dame, absolutely everywhere. Their fans permeate every city they're in. Not technically part of the ACC. Way better local alternatives exist. They're Starbucks. Just, that's perfect. Drop this whole thing is perfect. Yep. That, that guy... And, and- I- is so funny and it's so on target. Yeah, every and, one of these. And I would target. say, even though even though Donald read a lot of what I think will be the favorite ones, you have to check out the whole thread because a, it's all great, and b, it it comes with gifts. And yes, some of them are also the the Georgia Tech one is great. So, uh, so <laughs> I'm check looking that out. At, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's it's absolutely hilarious. Let me let me share mine my parting shot real quick. I was um, walking around Duke's campus today. And I was actually bragging? showing you're my bragging. you're bragging that you're at Duke, aren't you? Well, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, I, 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 well, I'm bragging about Duke. I was showing my roommate around and he didn't 
he didn't go to Duke for undergrad. Uh, he is in my program, but I was I was pointing at all these different buildings and saying like, oh, this is whatever such and such building. It's new or it's been very recently renovated or, oh, it looks like they're renovating this. I didn't even know. Um, so if you haven't been back to Duke anytime recently, there are there is like so much new stuff everywhere. Um, and uh, so I encourage you to come back and, and visit because uh, it doesn't look like what you remember, even if you know you graduated like three years ago. So um, come on back to campus, check it out and say hi. And Sam has a couch you can sleep on. Sam has told me that anyone who listens to the podcast can sleep on his couch for free. Is that correct, Sam? I have not said any such thing. Um, but I look forward to, I don't know, meeting some podcast listeners or, you know, something maybe a little bit more benign than that. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe, you know, you never know where no, friendships will, will, will come from. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, guys, so... <laughs> So my parting shot is this. Are you all familiar with the basketball tournament? Oh, oh the, yes. The, the three-on-three? TBT? No, no, no. I watched a lot of it. The, the TBT. It concludes in the next couple of days. We'll probably get this podcast up in time before it's all finished. They are down to a final four at the basketball tournament. If you're not familiar with it, it is a five-on-five winner-take-all tournament with first prize, the only prize, winner-take-all, is $2 million. That is not insignificant amount of, of money. And up from and $1 million. It started as yes. a $1 million winner-take-all. It actually started at 500000 Now it's up to $2 yeah. million. Mm -hmm. Almost all the games are broadcast on ESPN. And this is not like, you know, scrubs from, you know, who knows where. There are most of these teams are comprised of former college teammates or guys who went to the same school. So, for example, one of the teams in the Elite Eight was called Bayheim's Army, and they were all guys who went to Syracuse. We're talking like Hakeem Warwick, Eric Devendorf. I mean, these are guys who were, you know, Syracuse stars. They lost to the Golden Eagles, who were guys who played for Marquette. Jimmer Fredette, remember the great Jimmer? He has a team that's still alive. They beat a team of former Ohio State players in the Elite Eight, including Jared Selinger and Greg Oden. We have a Greg Oden sighting. Greg Oden was playing in the basketball tournament. There was a St. John's team, a Memphis team, a team from Wake, UCLA, Georgetown. So why is there no Duke team? I mean, I get that the current Duke NBA guys are not going to risk injury to play for $2 million. It doesn't matter to them. And I get that there are some Dukies who are trying to make it to the NBA, um, you know, who are playing in the G League and things like that, who, who again, wouldn't want to risk injury. But, I mean, come on. Ron, how about Ryan Kelly or Nolan Smith, guys who went out of the NBA before they really wanted to, who are still in their prime. Josh Hairston, who's playing over in Europe. Come on back for a little bit, Josh, and play in this tournament. Daniel Ewing, Dante Jones recently retired, Andre Dawkins, Tyler Thornton. What about Gerald Henderson? Gerald, show the NBA that you're still an NBA player. How is it not a thing that there's a Duke team for the basketball tournament? I'd be watching this thing like the whole way, 100%. How We've got to make this happen. Dukies, if you know a former Dukie who is not playing in the NBA, tell him right now they need to form k's army or whatever you want to call it uh there has to be a blue devil team in next year's basketball tournament i love it i i think it'd be great um i think the real issue is that most of our players that would participate in, in tbt are still in the nba so yeah we're too I, good I, that's the problem we're, we're too, too good, good for the tbt <laughs> and i and you know what i will take that yeah and still but this episode this episode has been heavy on the on the duke hubris i'm 
I'm enjoying it. <laughs> so, thank you, thank you, Jason, for bringing that to our attention. That that I I I think I was like vaguely aware that that existed, but I've I've never like consumed any the basketball tournament content. So maybe it's maybe it's finally time to start. I, I'll say by the way that I think that branding a lot of these teams and tying these teams to universities makes me care a heck of a lot more. Um, because there are a number of guys whose names I recognize and I go, oh yeah. I mean, if you, if you just had guys on random teams, it doesn't matter to me. But when you tell me that Jared Selinger and Greg Oden are playing on an Ohio state team, if I'm an Ohio state fan, I'm like, I'm tuning in for every one of those. That's why I want Duke to have a team. And, and that sort of gets to a lot of the like higher argument about all of college sports and what it's worth and who, you know a lot of the discussion around the sport is you would watch even this, which is not a college basketball game um, because it's affiliated with Duke. Uh, there's, there's a lot to be said about, about what, what you just stated. Amen. Absolutely. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here on DBR podcast number 122. Once again, I want to thank one of the all-time greats, one of the best shooters in Duke history, Trajan Langdon, for joining us on this podcast. Trajan, we, we really enjoyed having you on. Best of luck to you in your NBA general managing career. And I want to thank Donald and Sam for joining with me once again. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks after Duke has played their games in Canada. We'll be giving you a full recap of everything we saw. You heard what we're hoping to see. Hopefully we will see it. For Sam and Donald, I am Jason, DBR podcast number 122 in the books. Thanks a lot, folks. Duke Band, it's your turn. Take us home. <laughs>